My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. We're going to be continuing our journey into the book of Romans. But before that, once again, we'd like to remind you all that I have been uh, on my seminary life with Brandon Knight. Uh, one episode, I was with him and Pastor Will to discuss uh, discuss Clash of the Titans. And another where Brandon and I alone talked about 300 episodes have already released. It's been a spectacular time there. Really enjoyed doing that with him. I look forward to further collaborations in the future. But besides all that, we're going to get into Romans today, into chapters 10 and 11, starting with verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's a, um, a point here that Paul is making in that there is a difference between seeking God zealously intellectually and seeking God zealously personally and seeking God zealously pridefully. Now, all this is brought up here. You can't truly, that's a contradiction, that last one. And that's what the Jewish people were doing, some of them, in that they were attempting to force their own view on God, using their knowledge in a way that poorly reflected on how they actually understood the story. Now, attaining more knowledge of God is always good and helpful when it comes to learning how to serve him. But if our purpose is to simply acquire more knowledge for knowledge's sake or to further our own agenda, like some of the Jews did with their works-based faith beliefs, then we miss the point of why God wants us to seek him out. God has desired a personal relationship with all of his children since the beginning of the world, and his seeking of reconciliation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proves how strongly he feels about that. Now, there are some people out there who will use this and say that this is an anti-intellectualism statement made by Paul. Nothing could be further from the truth. And anyone who would say otherwise clearly doesn't understand him or logic. To be able to make this point, Paul must be an intellectual because he wouldn't understand what he was talking about, because to make a claim this bold takes studying and practice. Folksy wisdom has its place within the church because people can always learn from the examples of someone's life, but it can never replace our call to seek God intellectually either. And placing too much emphasis on it, likewise, is bad, as Paul calls out here, because ultimately, Seeking out God personally takes more precedence, as desiring to learn more about him is but one way of showing our zeal to know him personally. So all that to say, look, there's a time and a place to not think intellectually. There is a time and a place to think intellectually. There is never a time and a place for me to think pridefully when it comes to my relationship with God or to enforce my own views because it makes sense to me or because that's how I want things to be. But it is always the time to seek him out personally, to understand him as best as we can with our limited human minds. Next up, we have verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on, excuse me, based on them, excuse me, blah, let's try that again. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, 
that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, excuse me, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Greek, excuse me, Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We also see here that Paul strikes back against anyone who would say that, you know, since the law has been completed in Jesus, we no longer need to listen to it. Once again, someone would have to not understand him to say this because he constantly quotes from the law, even in this passage alone, to get his points across. I've known several people in the world who have no love for the Old Testament or the law because they think parts of it no longer apply to us, then we need not concern ourselves with it at all. So if it's all not for me, then I have nothing I need to learn from it, which is a terrible line of logic because there are things that don't apply to me in the New Testament in that sense of, oh, well, this is that personal story. Like I can learn from it, sure, but like it doesn't really matter when these things happen in the great scheme of things. Like I don't need to know the roads that Paul and Luke and everyone took on their missionary journeys. It helps enhance the story, but it doesn't affect my faith in any way, shape, or form. Like it could be cut out, but God put it there anyways for our benefit. And the same is true of the Old Testament. There are plenty of things no one likes. Well, sorry, I should not say this because it is not true. There are many people out there who don't like reading Leviticus. Well, guess what? It has its place in the story. It doesn't need to be cut out simply because I get bored reading some of it. Not to say I get bored reading the whole book because there's plenty to learn from Leviticus, even the parts that I find boring. So it's the same thing. You can't get rid of something simply because it doesn't apply to you. When it comes to scripture, it applies to all of us, just not the same way every single time and not as great as some verses. Or sometimes those verses just don't matter as much to our minds. That doesn't mean we just simply ignore them and then move on with our lives. No, God placed them there for a reason. There is something to learn from it. So that has no place in the church. It's simply, oh, Jesus fulfilled the law, so I don't need to study the Old Testament. This is folly. The gospel is built upon the foundations provided by the history, wisdom, prophecy, and law of the Old Testament. Without that as a precedent, we do not have a frame of reference for what makes Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so important. We don't know about the law that says any man hung up on a tree is condemned, is cursed. We don't know about the fall without Genesis. We don't know about the history of Israel as a nation that God set apart from all nations without reading the Old Testament and then wondering, well, who, why would Jesus come to them? Why not to the Romans? Why not to the Han Chinese or someone else? We don't know that without the Old Testament as our foundation. It'd be like if you just went out and read Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows first and only that book, and then not knowing why Harry's sacrifice there works without being feeling cheap when he comes back from the dead. Sorry, spoilers there for a book that's been out for over a decade without context. Or... Or picking up the current run of Amazing Spider-Man and wondering why fans are so outraged at what's happening there with blatant character assassinations and abysmal editing. Like if you're just looking from the 
you just pick up a comic and go, okay, that's fine, I guess. And you have no knowledge of the history of can beforehand. Well, of course, you're not going to know why people are upset. Context matters. Without those earlier novels and comics as a frame of reference, I can't critique what is right or what is wrong about how things are portrayed within them currently. Nor would I be able to counter something poorly written, like, say, the Da Vinci Code, for its heretical ideas about who Jesus was and what he did if I only had a surface knowledge of the story of the Gospels and just decided to read Jude or Revelation one day in order to combat the poorly researched ideas Dan Brown presents there in the book. That doesn't work. I need the totality of Scripture to show why Jesus is who he is, why he's not a man, solely a man. He is man and God, 100% of each. How does that math work? I don't know. It just does. To combat these heretical ideas, oh, well, he was a man, he had children, and, you know, that bloodline lives on today. That's this the Da Vinci Code. Sorry for spoiling that as well. I just saved you having to read a terrible novel. And actually, movie's pretty okay. But that's because of the acting, not because of the story. Also, we see here, Paul quotes Deuteronomy to bring up the idea that the Jews already had the idea of what to do with their faith in God far before Jesus preached to them about 1,400 years later. Our actions don't affect how Jesus works, but our words and actions do show what we truly believe. And that's what we see here from those verses. I do not call up Jesus to life you know, simply when I need him. I do not call Jesus to death simply when I sin. No, that's already been done. And we also see here the verse of confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord isn't just some pithy saying that deserves to be watered down in church to have next to no meaning anymore. It should be a bold declaration of the totality of a believer's understanding of who they are and what Christ has done for them. Simply praying, uh, saying a prayer or saying the right words doesn't make one a Christian. Proclaiming them and then pursuing Christ does. They show that within my heart, in my mind, I am completely devoted to him and nothing else has mastery over me. Furthermore, God proves his love for all of humanity by not discriminating against those who cry out to him for belief. He takes on everyone who truly calls on his name to make them his children. It's not just for this one group of people. It is for all races, all creeds, all nationalities who come to him and recognize their weakness and say, not me, but you. I confess with my lips that you are Lord. Then with my actions, I do the same. It's not a simple one and done. There has to be a heart change in that process that actually truly shows who you are after saying, I say Jesus is Lord. Any idiot can say that. It's another thing to live it out. Verses 14 through 21. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Instead, they have for, excuse me, indeed they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. 
I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Kind of the motto of Israel, kind of the motto of us, really, if you're thinking about it. Now, Paul starts this off, this section, with some rhetorical questions to help establish points on the importance of evangelism. People cannot believe in what they haven't heard of, so how can they find God if no one tells them about him? Outside of the general revelation that is apparent in creation that shows us that God exists and created all things, there's a general sense in all of humanity that there's something more out there that this couldn't have happened by random chance, that something designed all of this. Some people deny that instinct. Other people embrace it. Other people just say, okay, that's a thing, and then move on with their lives. Everyone has that in their hearts. But they can't go any further in truly understanding what has been done for them if it's not told to them. They cannot know about why Jesus had to come to this earth to die for our sins if they have no context for it. Humans need context to understand things that they have no power of figuring out on their own. We provide that context to those who may have heard of Jesus and what he did, but have no idea what that actually means to them personally and that they have need of a savior and can't save themselves based on their own merit. When I was young, I had an idea that, you know, I was holding, say I had two, uh, I don't know, two apples. I held one in each hand. I know that I'm holding more than one, but I don't have a concept of two without someone explaining to me, hey, you have more than one item. If you had another, that's three. You have another, that's four, and so on and so forth. Like, I have an idea of the general sense there's, there's more than the one that I currently have, but the actual words for focusing on that and understanding that I didn't know until someone came to me. It's the same way with Christ. We have a general sense that there is more to this life than what we are experiencing. But without a Christian coming in to speak that truth into someone's life, they're not truly going to be able to understand. However, we also see here that hearing alone isn't good enough. There are plenty of things that I've heard before that haven't sunk in yet, no matter how much it's been explained to me. Let's a couple of ideas here, instances like quantum mechanics and anything involving higher level mathematics mean nothing to me because I don't understand them, no matter how many times I've heard someone speak to me on those subjects. I hate math. Okay, I'll just say that. Like, it's not made for me. Once letters got introduced to my numbers, I was the dumbest person in the room, it felt like at times. It just didn't click. I know as a concept, there are things that work. And if you do this, you'll get a certain equation that brings the answers there. But like actually understanding it, I never did. I passed those classes, but don't ask me how I did it. Like uh, the worst thing in the world was always say, show your work. It's like, I don't know. I just punched in the calculator and that's the answer. That's for me. But there are plenty of other people who, when that same thing is brought up, they get it. They understand the intricacies of how, if you have this one formula here, this is how you're able to design something better. This is how you're able to see, oh, if I build it this long, then this will happen. Or what have you see how poorly I'm trying to explain that because it just doesn't work for my brain. You know, likewise, you know, there's still a very primitive part of my brain that, that thinks 3D printing is black magic and those who practice it should be burnt as witches. Like, I don't actually think that, but it's that sense of, I don't get it. It's been explained to me several times. But I haven't grasped how it works despite hearing from very smart and wise instructors. Sometimes it doesn't matter how wise and intelligent someone is. It depends on the person you're talking to. 
The same is true of humanity sometimes when we present the gospel to them and it doesn't sink in. Some people can't logically make their way to the points we're making, no matter how well presented those points are. The gospel is an aberration in their thought process that they can't absorb and add to what they already know. Say, hey, you know, two plus two equals four. Uh, the sun is going to come up in the morning. They know that because they experience it. They, they understand that. Say, Jesus came to die for your sins. Well, I don't see why I needed to do it. I'm perfectly fine on my own. You see that point I'm making there? This is not your fault when that happens. It simply means that their brains are wired differently than yours and mine and the things within you that helped you understand what the gospel was truly about. And you didn't come to the gospel the same way I did. Someone explained it to you differently than it was explained to me. And that's what worked for me. And that's what worked for you. And that's we got to be flexible sometimes. And even in that flexibility, realize, oh, we're going to fail. And failure in the sense of, oh, I didn't win someone to Christ. Or no, the failure is on their part. Sometimes it can be very much on our part if we present things poorly. But I'm talking about when you do it correctly. You're on your A game. You've got the gospel out there. You're explaining all the different, you know, uh, things in the world, you know. Creation shows this, and uh, God shows that, and this is what the Bible says. This is why it's inerrant, blah, blah, blah. And you've got it. You're on task, and it's like you've been talking to nothing. It's going to happen. That's not your fault if you're doing things correctly. There's plenty of fault to be placed at those who don't understand the gospel and add on to it and say things that have no basis in reality. Sure, after that, I really hope that person doesn't believe in the gospel because they were presented with a false gospel. But it's not your fault when you give that eloquent argument. And they say something like, I don't get it. Or like, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe it. Look, there needs to be a response to the truth. And sometimes that response is to reject it or to attempt and fail to poke holes in it because that person might not understand or might not be willing to admit it's true. Either way, we need to be prepared and speak to them. And we need to be prepared for the reality of someone saying, no, I don't get it. Or no, that's not for me. That's what Paul's speaking of here. I mean, you don't think there are plenty of people Paul talked to that didn't get it? I mean, all you have to do is look at Acts. Plenty of people, smart people, uh, wise people who didn't get the gospel. And then you have your outliers. You have your Herods there as well. And your Felixes who, you know, they're not dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, they don't want to change who they are. And they just think the gospel is just some weird thing. And this is Paul we're talking about here. Uh, the man known for his evangelism. So if he can't do it, guess what? That means sometimes you and I can't either. And yet we are still greater than him in some respects in the ways we operate because we are not acting like him. We are acting like who Jesus made us to be. So be that person regardless of what happens. Next up, uh, 11 verses 1 through 10. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, 
Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What we see here is that God still has not rejected his people in Israel, despite many of them rejecting him to this day. It's one of Paul's major points throughout Romans is, look, God hasn't given up on them, even when we see them reject him to his face. One needs only to read a small snippet of Israel's history to gain an appreciation for God's mercy that he, that he simply doesn't wipe them out for their multiple moments of apostasy. Like, you, you don't even have to read all of Judges. You can just get a, a couple of chapters in. You can go through the Exodus. You can go through Deuteronomy and Numbers and all over the place, even beyond that. Just look in First and Second Kings and Chronicles and the wisdom books and the prophets and go, why don't these idiots get it? Why doesn't God just give up on them? Because then he wouldn't be who he is if he gave up on them. And we see that reading the Old Testament in its entirety truly makes us realize how patient and loving God is because we see just how poorly he has been treated by the one people group he made special in the whole world. But God is still faithful when his people, whether Christian or Jew, are not. There will always be a remnant, no matter how small it may look to our eyes. Always, there will be a remnant of people who believe in him. If it's one of those things, like if I were God, if we're already in a bad starting point, if that's the case, and I selected one people group out of the entire world, doesn't matter what their names would be, where they were at, and they treated me like Israel treated God, well, I wouldn't have a nation anymore. They'd be dead. And if I treated a friend like that, I would expect them to no longer be my friend because I am not treating them well. Well, guess what? That's our relationship with God. That's Israel's relationship with God. It's he who struggles with God. We are struggling every day with him. We're fighting him. Sometimes we're fighting with him. Sometimes we're fighting against him. Sometimes we're not doing anything at all. And as we see in Revelation, that's the thing that God, hate, God hates the most. At least pick a side. At least be in sin or at least be with me. Don't just, you know, screw around doing nothing. We also see here, God has his limits, though. The people of Israel and Judah were punished severely for their apostasy and dalliances with foreign gods as a result of their own pride and rejection of God. We see the trend that Paul started with Pharaoh's heart, continued on with the Jews in that God provided them with evil spirits and minds, confirming what was already within their hearts as a punishment so that he could allow them to live their lives as they wished and see how this was folly in the end. God had the prophets sent all throughout Israel. Guys, get back on track. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Live humbly. Be just. Offer mercy. And it's rejected time and time again by people who hear what he has to say and say, nope, not for me. I'm going to do my own thing. And what does God do? He doesn't brainwash them. He doesn't make them puppets. He says, okay, you're going to do what you want to do. And I'm going to confirm your choices. And let's see how that ends up in the end. For Israel and Judah, didn't end up so well. Uh, forcible exile into a country and you know, potentially several tribes being lost to history along the way. Not how I would have wanted things to end. But he let them live in their apostasy because he is merciful when righteously he should have just wiped them out. But he didn't because God is loving, because God is merciful. He then, however, didn't just I'll say, oh, you guys just do whatever you want. No, he punished them for their disbelief on his own time. We look at Israel as a nation. I mean, truly. It start, King Saul truly unites them, but then David goes even further beyond that. 
around 1000 BC, establishes his kingdom there. And yet for the next 400 some years, it doesn't remain that way. There were plenty of times God could have easily said, all right, mm, yep, uh, got this guy from Cush coming up, Asa, and well, everyone's going to get overrun. Or he could have said, well, nope, the Arameans are coming your way, Ahab, and all of Israel is going to be wiped out. But he didn't. He was patient with them. And only when they just came to the point where they would never say yes to him is when the, uh, the Assyrians came in, took away Israel. You know, the Babylonians came in, took Judah. Because God isn't some passive, oh, you just do whatever you want. It's like, no, I'm going to let you do what you want. But there are consequences for that. You know, he punished their disbelief on his own time. How many times for us has God allowed us to live in sin, even when we know the truth and seek after what pleases us? I don't know about you, but the answer for me is more than zero, which is what it should be. If God were holy, righteous, the moment I looked away and said, I'm going to do this instead, I'd be dead. But he didn't. And that's happened way more than one time or two times. I don't want to know the number. I'm already disappointed not knowing the number. Actually, knowing the number would further solidify just how bad I am at my job sometimes. But what I take heart in, what I find joy in, is this shows his true faithfulness. And even that when I leave him for a time, when we leave him for a time, he will always bring us back on his own time and through his own way, sometimes through pain and suffering, and other times through gentle reminders that lead us to correction. We should be grateful for both because it could just be one. It could always just be through pain and suffering, but it's not. And God is merciful to do so. Verses 11 through 24. So I ask, did they stumble, they being Israel, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I, so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? What we see here is that God expects Israel 
to see the Gentiles coming to faith and a relationship with him and then get jealous over it. I thought what we had was special. (laughs) This was supposed to be their right. And yet God allows foreigners into his kingdom. There are some people of Israel who have seen this and then realized the totality of God's message for the world beyond them as a people and then came to faith. Paul has weaponized this concept because it is massively insulting to them and should hopefully get them to realize their need to join the Gentiles in service to God. Not all will, but some will, which is more than they deserve, and it is far more than we Gentiles deserve. You see, God takes off branches, which means some of those branches aren't coming back. That is awful. That is terrible. There is condemnation there, but it's a confirmation of their choices. And God cannot act against himself and just craft them back on and say, oh, you scallywags, you know, you never once said I was Lord, but ah, oh, just get on in, guys. We're going to have a good old time, even though you reject me still to this day. No, he cuts them off and he grafts on wild branches. We Gentiles are those wild branches when we say yes to him, because there are plenty of Gentiles that are wild branches that are never getting on that tree, that are never going to be supported by those roots. We also see here Paul rightfully speaks out against Gentiles who would make light of the fact that the Jews didn't believe or to those who did are small in number because this has no place in the church. And we've talked about uh, before how there are very few Jewish people in the church today. They're only one people group out of a world with 8 billion some people in it. I, I can't think of a time when I have been in the church when I knew for sure there was someone of Jewish ancestry in there. And it's not like I've been in every church in the world, but I think I can safely say it's not common. That's not impossible, but it's not common. But I then don't get to say, oh, look at those fools. They don't believe in Jesus like I do. I'm so much better than them. No, I was grafted onto that tree. And that means a branch had to be broken off for that to happen to make space for me. That's sobering. That goes, oh, I was brought on. I was never once going to be a part of that tree until God said. And to do that, something had to be taken off. Someone had to say no. That was supposed to have been on that tree, but they rejected him. This does not make us superior, but in fact should make us humbled because we were grafted onto the tree that brings life from a tree the way we would have surely died had we stayed there. If I had remained on the olive tree where my shriveled up branch had been on, there is no life for me. It would have been consumed by entropy and die and be sent to hell for the choices that I had made on my behalf because I never would have been good enough. But God grafted me on that tree when I said yes to him, despite never once deserving it or earning it or anything else that could have gotten me on that tree, only him bringing me there to that point of saying yes to him of my own choice brought me to that tree. If God also didn't spare the branches that came from the Israelites who denied him, he most definitely has no reason to spare us if we do the same or act in a haughty manner and blind ourselves to the truth of our situation just to falsely feel superior to those who said no to him. I may still be on the tree if I say something like that, but my branches aren't looking as good as everyone else's. You know, the buds aren't going to be as beautiful. The fruit's not going to be as immense as it could be if I'm holding on to something petty like that pride. And God would have every right to get rid of me then, but he won't because of who he is. I just need to get my act together. Same happens to anyone else who does that. I'm not superior to the Jewish people who say no. I'm just an idiot who said yes. And he's going to do something with that. Verses 25 through 36. 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord of who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's start at the beginning of that passage. The mystery that Paul speaks of was something that they could not have been aware of until it was revealed to the Gentiles and that where they once inhabited a world where only the Jews had the true knowledge of God, now they live in a world where that truth has been revealed to all, Gentile and Jew alike. A mystery is still a mystery even when you have no awareness of it, but now they know the reveal, and that should spur their hearts to act on that revelation to all who come to Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. That should be something, a mystery that reveals, oh, that's what God's been doing behind the scenes this entire time. He's been working for reconciliation for all people. That is good. That is far beyond what we deserve. We've solved that mystery. Now let's do something about it. Paul here also isn't saying that in the end, all Israel will come to faith and salvation, but through God's mighty work, he will banish ungodliness from Israel, which means that those who rejected him are not truly a part of Israel. For if they were, they would come to him. Like earlier, referred to the verses where we see the branches of Israel being cut off and Gentiles being grafted onto it instead. And that tells me there are going to be Israelites who say no and will always say no and won't be grafted on. They'll be cut off forever. That's not something I take pleasure in. It's not something I take joy in, but it's reality. And we have to come to terms with that. And some people will say different things about how that works. I say, don't do that. I say, look at what the scripture says. But there's plenty of room for debate. And that's where I end up at. Where do you guys end up at? Let me know or contact me. I'm more than happy to hear your takes. Likewise, we see that God has consigned all to disobedience in their sin, but he may have mercy on all. This isn't a free card for everyone to accept on their own time, but for those who say, yes, this is a passionate and loving display of mercy and that to those who could never earn it or truly seek it without help, God will be faithful and true. That is why Paul ends that part of this letter saying amen. That is an amen time to say that, an amen statement right there. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. I preach it, brother. That sounds pretty dang good. All right. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I think next time uh, I'm just going to be doing Romans 12. I, I did kind of want to slow down for a little bit. Uh, uh, not that we've been going at a breakneck speed. Like I've certainly seen people like preach on multiple chapters of Romans beyond what I've been doing. Uh, and yeah, two sometimes can feel like it's not enough. Sometimes it can feel like it's too much. But I did want to slow for 12 because we do get 
into some of the spiritual gifts Paul mentions here. And since we're not going to be going to 1 Corinthians for a very long time or anywhere else that Paul mentions the gifts, like I do want to, you know, give a little time to focus on each one that he mentions here. We may even go into the other ones too, just so we get a, a total understanding of what spiritual gifts are, what they do, how they apply to us. What is your spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? What are my spiritual gifts, I should say? And then move on from there. So please, when you get the time or you feel led to, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of, of choice just to help us out there with reaching more people. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Noel for the editing that he does and for the music that he, he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. <laughs>